Let's pray. God, this morning before we lift up some specific things about how we spend the next few minutes, I want to pray for another church and for the leadership at this church, or at least the the pastor uh, that I know, uh, Trent Brown and Gateway Fellowship. Lord, we want to lift up this church in Roy City and uh, lift up, first of all, their worship and their work. And pray that it will be something that, when refined by fire, will stand and will be pure and golden. We pray for a work there that is salty and aromatic and faithful and relentless. I pray for, uh, pray for Trent thinking about, firsthand thinking about some of the stuff that he probably deals with from week to week. And Lord, I pray that you would guard his um, flesh or guard his work from his flesh. Guard your work from his failings and um, frailties. And that in fact you would use those as vehicles for humility. I pray that you would use those uh, daily, weekly reminders of uh, the fact that nobody's graduated Grace College, including the pastor, so that he sees himself as just a messenger among his brothers and sisters, and he can be used in a way that would bring you glory. Pray for a church there, Gateway Fellowship, that is attentive to your work and your will. I pray that they are responding to the preached and exposed word each week and that your people are salty and bright and aromatic in Roy City. I pray for Trent and his family. I pray that you would guard his family and keep them in Christ Jesus, that you would protect them from the wiles and the ways of the evil one, and that you would use him for your own glory. I pray for your will to be done in how we walk through a chapter of your Bible, your word. pray that it will be something that will give us eyes to, attentiveness to, your glory, your greatness, and especially this morning, your power. I pray that our awe score would move and that we would be refreshed and renewed and stirred up by way of reminder just how glorious and just how marvelous and just how wonderful you are. And I pray that the things of earth would grow strangely dim in the light of this glory that we'll see in these next few minutes. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Turn to Isaiah 40. We're in the second Sunday of what I'm calling an awe series, A-W-E, awe. You charged me and my family with rest and growth during our sabbatical. We've spent two of our three months on sabbatical already. The third month is is in October. So really, officially, we're about two-thirds rested right now. Not quite truly rested, but just enough to... uh, to spend some time in these last or in these couple of months that we had away from the pulpit, to I had some time to examine myself and to consider some things that I needed in my walk and things that I um, needed for growth. I read a book by Paul Tripp. Um, I can't even remember the name of it. It's a a book for pastors. What is it? Dangerous Calling. Thank you, Jeff. 
Dangerous Calling is the name of it. It's for pastors, but it's not limited to pastors, so it's something that any of you could read. There's a section in there that has to do with losing your awe and what happens when you lose your awe. And he quotes a man named B.B. Warfield. It's a quote worth looking up if you get that book, and it's a book worth reading. But it's something that encouraged me with stopping down a few weeks and reconnecting to awe, to the awe of God. I think if most of us were asked, hey, man, what do you think of God? We'd have plenty of great things to say. But would our lives really reflect it in the fray? On Tuesday, when we're in the thick of something going down in the uh, cubicle, or on Thursday, when we're in the thick of something going down in the kitchen, does our life really reflect awe? Are we fueled by awe, this marvel, this wonder, this shock with the greatness of God? I needed that, and I've needed last week, and I need this week, and I think I'm going to need the weeks to come. And based on what I've heard from other people since this last Sunday, uh, it may be an epidemic. I had folks, I can't say that, obviously we can't say that everybody's there. In fact, I had something pretty funny. Someone came up to me. I'm not going to share her name after worship. And she said, I was, you remember the all score we did last week of 1 to 100? 0 to 100. 0 is yawn. 100 is I'm about to put on a loincloth and dance around this sanctuary. God is so great. Someone came after me and said, came up afterwards and said, you know, I was at 100 before the sermon, and now I'm at 200. And I thought that was pretty cool. Most of us, though, most of us, I think can use some time to really stop down and reconnect to awe, awe of God, the greatness of God, the wonder of God. Today we're going to be focusing on God's power. Last week we considered uh, his very greatness, and this week we're going to consider his power. I'm going to give you a little bit of context before we climb into Isaiah 40. And then we're going to sort of unpack Isaiah 40 in five parts, five chunks with thoughts as we go after each of those chunks. But let me give you a little bit of context. I need to share this context with you, and I, I need to confess to you this is something that I'm very, very burdened about because in a, in, a, in a lot of ways, this context is making my Bible come to life. After 10 years of preaching and 10 years of serving full-time at Crosspoint, my Bible still comes to life, and it still needs to. And connecting these dots for context will do that for you too. I think I was at seminary before I realized a few things about the story of Israel. That the nation of Israel was split in two. And it wasn't until the last few weeks actually teaching through these Old Testament books where this sort of found a real home. And seminary was years ago. Having preached through John, having spent a lot of time in this pulpit, a lot of time in my study... A lot of time reading Minor Prophets, a lot of time reading 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Chronicles. It's just in the last few weeks that these sort of dots are starting, starting to connect for me. So I make no assumptions about what you know. If you know all this, man, to God be the glory, he's amazing and he has done something amazing in your life. I've been a Christian since I'm, I was six years old, and I think I'm 45 or 46, I forget. So that's a long time to just in the last few weeks for these things to settle. So I'm making no assumptions about what you know about the story of Israel. I'm going to start with the kings. The nation of Israel had a period after they were moved into the promised land that they were led by judges. 
That didn't go well. People were doing what's right in their own eyes. And then there came a point in time where the nation of Israel wanted to be like its neighbors and wanted to have a physical king, a king they could touch and feel, a king that they could make much of and point to like their neighbors did. And Samuel wasn't very happy about it, but God said, you know what? We're going to give them what they're asking for. So he gave them Saul. He gave them David. He gave them Solomon. If you know the story of those three, you know that even with a guy after man that just wired to be after God's own heart, even with that story in there, the story's not going very well for those three. This earthly king program is not going well. Solomon's son, Rehoboam, not listening to godly counsel, not listening to wise, older counsel, listening to the counsel of his buds and his pals, put more pressure on the nation of Israel than his father had, Solomon, toward the end of his reign, which was significant. And the kingdom was split. The kingdom was split between the northern part called the nation of Israel. Here's why it's confusing, and here's why it's easy to misunderstand. The northern part is the nation of Israel, made up of ten tribes. And the southern part is Judah, made up of two tribes, Benjamin and Judah. The, nation, or the, the tribe of Levites was spread all over the two kingdoms. The reason there's still ten is because Joseph had two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. So that's why there's ten in the north, the nation of Israel, two in the south, uh, the, the, the kingdom of Judah made up of Benjamin and Judah. Now, this period of these kings started, or excuse me, the period of the two kingdoms started around 900-something years before Christ. Mid-900s, just make it easy. Mid-900s. And for about 200 years, they start a series of really what I would call a roller coaster that's going downward, a series of a, a, a movement of decline. One king after another in Israel, in the north, and one king after another in Judah, in the south, things just go from bad to worse. Now, Isaiah steps into the picture 700-and-something years before Christ, about 200 years or so after the kingdom is split. And Isaiah's role is to preach to the southern kingdom, Judah. Jerusalem is in the southern kingdom as well. His job is to preach and to prophesy to the southern kingdom. His ministry serves from about 750 B.C. approximately to 670, 680 B.C., around in there. About 60 years. His hearers are Judah, just like I just said. Judah, and specifically... If you want to know who's reigning when, if you want to pick up your Bibles and start to connect some dots on your own, you can read First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, and here's some kings to look for while Isaiah is serving. Uzziah. If you're reading your Bibles, you're going to be looking for Uzziah, and in the headings, it's not going to say Uzziah. It's going to say Azariah, same dude. Azariah is the first one. Jotham is the second one. Ahaz is the third Hezekiah is the fourth one, and Isaiah likely died under or was martyred under Manasseh. There's a steep decline that takes place from when the kingdom split in 900-something B.C. to when eventually Judah goes into exile. This is an important date. If you remember anything today, I hope you remember this date. 587 B.C. 
In 587 B.C., Jerusalem is destroyed and Judah goes into exile. The northern kingdom has already been into exile into Assyria since 722 B.C. See why this is complicated? You see why people typically don't bother with this kind of stuff? Especially not in a sermon. Because like, I, I, I thought I was here on Sunday morning. This feels like Wednesday night. That's okay, because I'm not sure whether I'm teaching or preaching this morning. I'm just doing what I'm doing. 722 B.C., Israel, the nation of Israel, goes into exile into Assyria. 587 B.C., Judah goes into exile into Babylon. Okay. Now, a big chunk of our Bibles has to do with this story, this decline of the kings and then these events that take place in the destruction of the north and then the destruction of the south. A large part of our Bibles are dedicated to this. First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, some of Second Samuel. A lot of our prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. If you read Ezekiel and you're like, man, I have no clue what this dude is talking about. If you will connect it to who he's speaking to and to what's going on, it will begin to make some sense and you will have a lot more Bible. Realize, functionally, you have about one-third or two-thirds of your Bible if you don't engage this big center uh, nougat of the story. You're going to miss a lot, and effectively what you're going to do is you're going to parachute into the Gospels, into the New Testament, and you could potentially be lost. You will likely be lost. I told the kids about this in my, my Bible study the other night. I think it was 1987. I went to jump school. Army jump school. I was a Marine, but I got to go to Army jump school. And you don't have to go to jump school to figure this out. You can imagine what it's like when you jump into a landing zone. You jump in, and the first thing you do is you pull out your compass because you've got to figure out what's north and south. You're in the air spinning around. You're trying to figure out how you're not going to break bones, how you're not going to run into somebody else. You're looking for bad guys. You don't even know where north and south are because you've been like... When you, you want to know what it's like? Open the window when you're going 55, 60 miles an hour and spit out the window. You're the spit. <laughs> so you have no bearing on where you are. And you hit the ground completely lost. And you got to figure out what's north, what's south, where are the good guys, where are the bad guys, and what part am I playing in this story? And when we parachute into the New Testament, man, we can go any direction. We can land on anything. And I'll tell you this right now. I think a large part of the reason things like election and things like apostasy are so difficult for so much of the contemporary church is because we haven't done the work in the Old Testament. We haven't become acquainted with these stories where they've become part of our fiber, where we understand God through the lens of his work in sending his people into exile, preserving a remnant, and restoring them to the land. When you do that sort of work, those sort of difficult things, man, they just kind of click. They just kind of fall into place. So this morning is going to be a deposit in something that I don't know if I've ever really done the work of exposing this on a Sunday morning. So I think it'll be a good work. We're going to expose Isaiah 40 in five chunks. Let's, let's jump into our first chunk. And I'm going to share some thoughts as we go to help you sort of connect some dots. And hopefully by the end of this, what I want you to see, there are three things that I'm hoping will come out of this sermon, is that you will see God's power in judgment. 
It's not talked about very much in the, in the church, at least in contemporary church. It hasn't been in my context growing up, I, I should say. I should be very specific about what I'm, or what I'm saying there. It hasn't been engaged much, God's judgment, at least in my story. What I want you to see today is God's power in judgment, God's power in punishment and purifying his people, and God's power to save. We spend most of our time on God's power to save. And we could potentially be parachuting. We're going to look at them all today so we're not parachuting. So we're actually walking in, hiking into the context. Okay? His power to judge, his power to purify and punish, and his power to save. Isaiah chapter 40, beginning in verse 1. I'm going to read the first five verses. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill shall be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Now, a little complicated pointing out, describing the northern and southern kingdom and how that unfolded. That was just, I mean, that was a thumbnail sketch. This could also be a little bit complicated too, but it will open up the book of Isaiah for you. The book of Isaiah is broken up into three parts. Now, it does, you don't read it on the page here because chapter 39 just rolls right into chapter 40. And there should be like a little sign there that says big shift the book of isaiah is broke up into three broken up into three parts chapters 1 through 39 chapters 40 through 55 and chapters 56 through 66 now here's why it's important to understand that because here's what here's what i'm meaning when i'm saying this book is broken up that way chapters 1 through 39 are isaiah writing to and prophesying to his contemporary context. He's writing to people that are alive with him in, up to chapters 39. He's writing to people between mid-700s to early, which looks like it's late because it's a high number, 680 or so. Chapters 1 through 39 are to a living context right in front of him. Chapters 40 through 55, though, are written to those who will be in exile 90 years later, 100 years later. And then chapters 56 through 66 are written to those who are going to move back into the promised land 70 years later, after the exile. If you don't know that, then you're just all over the map in Isaiah. You're like, man, I don't even know who he's talking to. I don't even know what's going on. But when you realize that, you realize that the way chapter 39 ends will help you make sense of what's going on in 40. And really it's going to make sense of what we're doing this morning. But here's a way to think of it in case you didn't follow what I just said. Chapters 1 through 39 would be like a dad writing to his living family. Let's just imagine that he's writing what he's saying to them. But he's wanting to leave them some important heritage, some teaching. So he's writing it. And then chapter 40 through 55 would be a dad writing to his unborn grandchildren. They haven't been born yet. And it will apply to their context. 
It will certainly have some transfer to the living context, but it will be especially for their context. And then chapters 56 through 66 are a dad writing to his great-great-grandchildren that certainly aren't born. Okay? It's a way to think of this book of Isaiah broken up in three parts. Now, let's look at how chapter 39 ends. Let me give you a little bit of context. The story between Isaiah or the story of Isaiah and Hezekiah is an interesting story. I'm going to give you a little bit of larger context before I read a little section from chapter 39. Hezekiah was someone who would have been considered one of the good kings. There weren't a lot of them, but Hezekiah was one. And I'm going to put quotes. If people are listening online, my hands are making quotes. One of the good kings. Listen to this little development in Hezekiah's story. In those days, Hezekiah became sick and was at the point of death. And Isaiah the prophet says to him, of what the Lord says, Set your house in order, Hezekiah, for you shall die, you shall not recover. Then Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord and said, Please, O Lord, remember how I've walked before you in faithfulness and with a whole heart. I've done what's good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. Okay, He just got the bad news from Isaiah. Dude, you're going to die. Apparently he had some sort of boil. It's kind of funny because he told him to put a raisin cake on it. And that healed it. So raisin cakes are good for boils. So after he prays, God says, okay, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to add 15 years to your life, Hezekiah. I will deliver you and this city, speaking of Jerusalem, out of the hand of the king of Assyria and will defend this city. What he's speaking of is a siege around Jerusalem around 701, 700 or something B.C., about 22 years after the northern kingdom had already gone into exile into Assyria. They're surrounded in siege by the Assyrian army. And this was a horrible time in the story of Judah. This was a time, in fact, where moms, good moms, the end of Jeremiah tells us, good moms, like respectable moms, were boiling their babies and eating them. That's what siege is like. You don't have anything to eat. You don't have anything to drink. And this is the context right here where God says, you know what, I'm not only going to give you another 15 years, but I'm going to give you victory over the Assyrians. So that sounds good. And then over in verse 21, he says, let them take a cake of figs and apply it to the boil that he may recover. And sure enough, Hezekiah said, what is the sign that I shall go up to the house of the Lord? He's pretty eager that he's going to be healed and have another 15 years. Now, fast forward. What happens between where I'm about to read and what I just read is that the Babylonians show up. And Hezekiah is like, man, look at these Babylonians. Babylonians aren't bad guys at this point. I mean, kind of. We know the rest of the story, but Hezekiah didn't know. Hezekiah is like, man, Babylon is pretty cool. Here are the Babylonians. They're going to come visit. And you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to show them my storehouses. God's given me this extra 15 years, so I'm going to live it up. Come on, Babylonians. Check out our storehouses. Look at our temple. Look at all our fine silver and gold. Pretty awesome, isn't it? Well, here's what happens as a result of that in chapter 39, verse 5. This is going to set you up for 40. Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. What? I just showed them around the place. Yeah, sure enough, that wasn't very bright, knucklehead. 
There's going to come a time where all that you showed them is going to belong to Babylon. And guess what? Some of your sons, Hezekiah, who come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away, and they shall become eunuchs. A lot of times we read that word and just read it real fast, and we don't really stop and say, okay, what's a eunuch? Oh, eunuchs. They're going to become eunuchs in somebody else's palace. Oh, okay, that's not good. Then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, this one I put good around it, the word of the Lord that you have spoken is good. <laughs> what? For he thought there will be peace and security in my days. We'll talk about that in a minute. But what I want you to see and what I want you to realize right now is that exile is coming to a people who are vile. Exile is coming to a people who have been rightly judged as guilty. Exile is coming to a people. Listen to this passage. If you'd like to turn there, you're welcome to, but I'm I'm already there. So I'm likely going to be faster than you if I can find it. I want to read this because it's awesome. Ezekiel. You got to read Ezekiel like in private. Because Ezekiel like make you have to go shower afterwards. Because you're finding out how bad these people were. Listen to what he says. This, this is not so vile, but I'm going to read it in chapters 5 and 6. Listen to this. Because you're more turbulent than the nations that are all, are all around you and have not walked in my statutes or obeyed my rules and have not even acted according to the rules of the nations that are around you, because of that, I will execute judgments in your midst in the sight of the nations. Wait, yet, I will leave some of you alive. You who escape will remember me among the nations where they are carried captive, how I've been broken over their whoring heart that has departed from me. Over their eyes they go whoring after their idols, and they will be loathsome in their own sight for the evils that they've committed, for all their abominations, and they shall know that I am the Lord. I have not said it in vain that I would do this evil to them. And you shall know that I am the Lord when their slain lie among their idols around their altars on every hill on the mountaintops, under every green tree, and under every leafy oak, wherever they offered pleasing aroma to all their idols. This is talking about the nation of Israel. We're not talking about Babylonians. We're talking about God's chosen people. And I will stretch out my hand against them and make the land desolate and a waste in all their dwelling places from the wilderness to Riblah. Then they will know that I am the Lord via power executed in judgment. That's what's happening between chapters 39 and chapter 40. When you read it in Isaiah, you're like, oh, it's the next verse. Not realizing. Fast forward 90 to 110 years. Fast forward the finish decline of Israel. If Ezekiel chapters 5 and 6 don't give you some glimpse, you can look in the first part of the book of Isaiah. It gives you some more details of the condition of Israel. But just consider the passage we just read about a good king. The good king is promised 15 more years. The good king like a knucklehead. People do boneheaded, knuckleheaded things. Shows Babylon, Babylonians all their stores. But then after he hears what's going to happen to his sons and his grandsons, says, that's a good report. At least it ain't going to happen to me. Is that the leadership that Israel has? That's, that's, that's the good leadership. Man, that's heartbreaking. At least I'm not going to be made a eunuch. 
Yet when you really take that context in and yet when you read chapter 40 and you read the first couple of verses of chapter 40, you've got to be flabbergasted at just the first word, the first three words, four words, comfort, comfort my people. If you really take it in and you spend some time in Ezekiel, you spend some time in Jeremiah, you spend some more time in Isaiah chapters 1 through 39, and you just see, you take in what Israel did, when you stop down and you read the first four words of that chapter, you've got to go, wait a minute, what a crazy God we have. Comfort? First of all, why is there a chapter 40? Why didn't the book of Isaiah end with chapter 39? With exile and destruction, period. It makes me wonder, why wasn't the earth destroyed in the flood, period? Why weren't Adam and Eve destroyed when they were given one, one law? Don't eat from that tree. Why is there a next chapter? Why is there a next chapter, first of all? And second of all, why does it begin with comfort? And third, why does it continue with him referring to them as my people? If that doesn't leave you shocked, you really need to spend some more time in these stories. You really, alone with yourself, need to read some Ezekiel. And go, man, what what a crazy, graceful, crazy loving God we have. People that present God as this cosmic killjoy just out there smushing people. and mm, mm. Something's bad happening to me. It must be God doing it to me right now. Man, you need to get to know this God of the Old Testament. Some people think that, that love and grace should only show up in the new. His love and his grace are all over our Bibles. The fact that there's a chapter 40 is love and grace. And really, frankly, you've seen power to punish a little bit. You've seen power to purify You've seen power to judge. Here you're starting to see with just the first four words of chapter 40, power to save the unsavable. It takes power to save people like that under every green tree. It takes power to save people like this. And then there's a hint in verses 3 through 5 how he's going to get it accomplished. If you've read your Gospels, you know chapters three, verses 3 through 5 are really familiar. A voice cries, in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. If that's not familiar to you, I encourage you to spend more time in the Gospels, and you're going to go, Mm-mm, man, that sounds like John the Bee right there. Because John the Bee had the same role that, it, that Isaiah had. They're talking about the same salvation for Israel and for every man. You hear that? That's why Israel's story is our story too. Man, what Isaiah is prophesying about is pointing to ultimately what will be filled in and through the same person, Christ. Let's continue on in verse 6. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? Here's what you're going to cry, Isaiah. All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. 
Get, ye, get you up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might and, wi- and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd, a mighty one. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. It's interesting. Isaiah is being instructed here on the message he's to give to this people Israel. This really, these people that haven't even been born yet. I don't know how much he knows about exactly who he's speaking to. Surely God has given him some glimpse. Okay, we're shifting gears now. You've been speaking to your current context, but now you're going to be speaking to a future context as yet unborn. Your grandkids, your great-grandkids that are going to be in the exile. They'll need to hear these words because these words will encourage them. And what they need to hear, Isaiah, here's what I want you to cry out. First of all, I want you to cry. And Isaiah said, okay, what I'm supposed to cry All flesh is grass. People are grass. Okay, all right. How's that going to be an encouragement? Let's be really honest. You're in the exile. You've been made a eunuch in the the prince's um, courts. That's going to be an encouragement to you. All flesh is grass. Man, What seems to be developing here in this chapter as God is putting his glory and his power on display is in the same view, like in peripheral vision. He wants this people who are in exile to keep in their peripheral vision, to keep in their view at all times, their impotence. So you can't understand and appreciate his power apart from keeping your impotence. In view. Chapters 1 through 39 have just developed the condition of Israel. And the condition of Israel is like Adam given everything with just one little old tiny law don't eat from that forbidden tree. And then breaking that law and evicted from the garden. It's the same story. It's Adam's story, it's Israel's story. 39 chapters there of Isaiah develop. That all people are indeed grass. Not just Adam. Israel's grass too. And the only way to see his power, the only hope I have of your awe score moving a little bit, your awe meter moving in the direction of, of seeing greater awe in God, is that you have a view of your grassiness. That you have a view of your impotence thinking about this yesterday. Man, we are like grass in Greenville in September. You want to know what it looks like? When we dismiss here in a little bit, step right outside. We are like grass in Greenville in September, and the best of us, frankly, is barely hanging on. We don't always feel that way, but the best of us, in reality... If we want to see the power of God, is barely hanging on, brown and powerless. Adam proved it. Israel proved it. Adam traded it for a piece of fruit. 
Israel traded it for every, what took place under every green tree. Esau traded it for a bowl of soup. Demas traded it for falling back in love with the world. And I guarantee I'm pretty good at trading it off too. All men are grass. That's the message, Isaiah, I want you to give this people that are in exile. They'll find encouragement in my strength and power, not their own, because they don't have any. All men are grass. And yet the good news here is that he will save his people. Get you up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. There's good news for grass. Think about it. There's good news for grass. I found a passage later in the book of Isaiah, knowing that this story is going to be consistent through and through. In Isaiah 51, 3, it says, For the Lord comforts Zion. We know that. He just started it. Comfort, comfort, my people. He comforts all her waste places and makes her wilderness like Eden. Man, you see a consistent theme there in our Bibles? He makes their wilderness like Eden. Her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her, thanksgiving in the voice of song. There's a consistent story here, and there is good news that God gives hope to brown grass. Let's continue on in verse 12 of Isaiah 40. We're going to read all the way through 24, big section. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hands and marked off the heavens with a span? A span is the distance between the end of your pinky and the end of your thumb. Enjoy this imagery he gives us. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Who has marked off the heavens with a span? Take it in. Enjoy it. Who's enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like but a wee drop from a bucket. We is my word. I don't want to put anything in our Bibles. That's the message, though, and the point. The nations are but a wee drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing in emptiness. To whom, then, will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him. An idol? <laughs> really? A craftsman, even a skilled one, casts it. A goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts it for silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skilled craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. An idol that won't even move. Do you not know, though? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundation of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth. And its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a north-faced tent to 
dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he but blows on them and they wither. And the tempest carries them off like stubble. I was thinking about Isaiah's hearers here. Remember I told you the book's broken down into three sections. Chapter 40 is written to people that aren't born yet. So those who are hearing Isaiah's prophecy right here likely are going, Isaiah, what in the wide world of sports are you even talking about? (laughs) A little overdramatic, aren't you, Isaiah? A little over the top. Comfort. (laughs) I don't need any comfort. I'm feeling pretty good. Comfort my people. Things are going okay for us right now. I'm getting a little pressure from the Assyrians. You know, I saw what happened up north to the kingdom of Israel. But, I mean, we're Judah. we got it going on. I, I don't know what you're talking about, Isaiah. This is pre-exile ears that are hearing this. I'm thinking about these pre-exile ears, and I'm thinking, man, that likely has a lot to do with the ears that are hearing this right now. Man, we don't have any sort of threat like they have. For the most part, we experience generally peace. We have our own little versions of Babylon. We'll talk about that later. But it may be hard for us to connect to the gravity of what's being said here because just like it would be for them, it hadn't happened yet. It's pre-exile, though. But fast forward to the exile. Fast forward to the exile, and then things begin to come into focus of what's being said here in these verses I just read. I fear that sometimes veggie tales can take the oomph out of some stories. And veggie tales, I've picked on veggie tales before. I'm not anti veggie tales, so don't hear that. But we do that sometimes in our kids' stories where we make Daniel's story sort of cute, or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's story kind of cute. Like Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego all, gonna, got, all climbed onto a Greyhound bus. And went off on a big adventure into Babylon. It's going to be crazy. God's going to put us to the test. Man, we make it real sanitary. Because I mean, we tell the story to our kids. And we should. We don't have to go into great graphic detail. But us grown-ups are the older kids among us. We need to realize that what's being described here in this exile is terrible. They're not riding a Greyhound bus with great thoughts of the big adventure, imagining what it's going to be. Where they grew up is burning behind them. The wall around Jerusalem is raised. Not R-A-I-S-E-D, R-A-Z-E-D. Raised, leveled. The temple is in ruins. Man, imagine what these guys are experiencing. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Remember what he told Hezekiah? Your grandsons will be eunuchs in the king's court, in the king's palace. That enough right there is, to break your, is enough to break your heart. How would you like to find that out about your grandsons? That that's going to happen to them? Man, the exile was no joke. They weren't off on a big adventure. They ripped from their homes. They were ripped from the promised land. They were ripped from all that God gave them. This was not sanitary. 
And while Isaiah's immediate hearers may not appreciate these passages, passages like this, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Who's marked off the heavens with a span? Isaiah's hearers may not appreciate it because things aren't so bad for them necessarily. But for those who are in Babylon, those who've been ripped from their home, they might find encouragement. And the nations are like a drop from a bucket. And they're going, man... I'm so glad our God is in control right now because it sure does seem like Nebuchadnezzar is. That's what they say on VeggieTales, Nebuchadnezzar. Man, I'm letting this story hit me, trying to let it hit me like the, those in the exile. And man, I want it to grip me. I was thinking about a book that I used to read to kids when, I was, uh, when they were little. Christy and I both read this. Eric Carle has a series, they have a, he has a lot of books out, and they're all greatness. I used to, if the kids could, couldn't predict what's on the next page, I would tickle them. So they, that's, I think Luke has this amazing memory, and I think it's because I tickled him so much that if he didn't remember it, he's exercising his memory from early days, so he had to memorize what's on the next page. But there was this one story, Eric Carl book, that came to mind as I'm reading this, The Grouchy Ladybug. Has anybody ever read The Grouchy Ladybug? The Grouchy Ladybug is a pretty funny story. I'll see if I can kind of summarize it for you. This ladybug lands on a leaf that's covered with aphids. That's what ladybugs eat. Aphid is a little tiny wee insect, even smaller than a ladybug. He lands on this leaf, and there happens to be another ladybug there, and the other ladybug is really nice and pleasant. Hi. Good morning, ladybug. And the other one says, I don't remember exactly what the words are. I read it 8,000 times, but I forget. It's something to the effect of, don't talk to me. I'm going to eat all these, all these aphids. And the other one said, no, I don't think you are. He said, okay, well, you want to fight? He said, no, I, um, I, you're not big enough to fight. So that ladybug flies off and has a series of encounters. It's a pretty cool book because it takes you through the, the clock, too. Every hour, this ladybug, it takes a while for a ladybug to fly a distance. So it takes him an hour to get to the new place and the new critter. So the ladybug has a series of encounters with, first with a yellow jacket. Hey, ye- hey you, yellow jacket, you want to fight? And the yellow jacket says, oh, okay. He says, ah, you're not big enough. He goes on to the next critter. The stag beetle, the praying mantis, the sparrow with his sharp beak, the lobster, the skunk, the boa constrictor, hyena, gorilla, rhino, elephant. And then comes the whale. And the whale's pretty funny because this, this little um, ladybug, Fly, you know, a whale's big and a ladybug's really small. So a ladybug is flying and it takes some period of time. And about, I remember, I can't remember what time, 8 o'clock or something like that, the, the ladybug um, bumps into a fin. I can't remember the story, the, the order, but it's a fin and then a part. And he's talking to this whale like, hey, you want to fight? And, of course, the fin's not talking back. But he says, yeah, you're not big enough anyway. And then he keeps on and he eventually gets to the tail. And the tail slaps the ladybug so hard that the ladybug goes flying all the way back to the original leaf. It's a great story. And lands right there with the original ladybug with those aphids. Now, a bunch of them are gone by that point because the other ladybug's been eaten. But this ladybug is really friendly now because the ladybug has been slapped around a little bit. And the reason I thought of that story is I thought, man, we need to be slapped around a bit before we realize we're just wee grasshoppers. That's what this passage says to those who are in exile, who've been slapped by the whale to end all whales. 
You're just a grasshopper. You're just a wee grasshopper. And then and only then, when you realize and you've been slapped by a whale, then you will find us an encouragement to know that our God rules over the slappers. Hear that? Our God rules over the rulers. When you're in Babylon, that'll be an encouragement to you. Some people came to mind specifically beyond the grouchy ladybug. I have a little bit larger frame of reference than grouchy ladybug. Not much, but a little bit. I thought of Isaiah. Isaiah, I wonder if these words that he wrote about a future event would have given him encouragement while he, the, the, the tradition tells us, was being sawn in two by Manasseh, Hezekiah's son. You think he'd find some encouragement from these passages being reminded that God is all-powerful, God rules over the rulers? I thought, I bet Isaiah found some encouragement in that. I thought about Daniel. Daniel was a guy who's actually in that context that Isaiah is writing to. And I, we don't know that Daniel was sitting around reading Isaiah. But I can't but imagine that if that was written for those guys, for the exiles, that Daniel wouldn't have found encouragement in knowing that our God rules in his power over all rulers, including Nebuchadnezzar. I enjoyed, especially in light of this passage in Isaiah where we just read, that it's just his breath that moves them out of their place. They put a little bitty wee root down. His breath, the tempest, blows them like chaff. I especially appreciated this story in Daniel. Daniel interprets a dream for Nebuchadnezzar. And listen to what happens. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he's walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And it says walking, but I know, I know really deep down inside that he's really prancing. He's prancing because what happens next? He's, he's got a swagger, prancing on the roof of his palace. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. I love it. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox. And seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He's driven from among men and ate grass like an ox. Don't you love it? And his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird claws. I love the imagery there. It's just poetic. God says that's the way it's going to play out and sure enough it plays out because our God rules the rulers. He measured the waters in the palm of his hand. He spans the heavens. He but blows on the kingdoms, and that's a new kingdom or a new king. He brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. 
Scarcely they're planted, scarcely they're sown, scarcely their stem taken root in the earth when he just blows on them and they wither. The tempest carries them off like stubble. Man, I bet Daniel enjoyed that. I bet Isaiah enjoyed that. This summer, I had the chance to go to Rome with Christy and the kids. It was a big, big trip that we took this summer, kind of a once-in-a-lifetime deal. And we got to walk on the Roman Forum, which would have been the center of the Roman Empire for hundreds, I guess, hundreds of years, potentially. The Roman Forum is a pretty amazing place. If you could pull it up online or if you've been there, you know that you just kind of stand there with mouth ajar. Flies coming in and out, looking like you're from Texas (laughs) in Rome. Marveling at this wonder. But then when it really hits you, wait a second. These are ruins. They must have been pretty spectacular in their day. And they must have been especially spectacular where right across the Tiber River... The Jewish area of town where Jewish Christians would have been able to see the Roman Forum. Our context for Hebrews where we've been for months and months and months. They would have been able to see those leaders, those emperors, those statesmen, those senators prancing the Forum. They would have been able to see Claudius who evicted them from Rome in 49 AD. Get out. Because all the rabble associated with Crestus. Christ made some waves in Rome. But think about how much power it would have looked like they had. A moment's notice or no notice. They could raid your home, take everything that you own, and kick you out. Or, maybe in Nero's time, they could just take a big stick and they could make you a human torch in Nero's garden. Man, it would have been an comfort to those people to know that our God rules the rulers. It would have been a comfort for them to know and be reminded that he brings princes like Claudius to nothing. What Roman Empire? God breathed. And then here we are saying, what Roman Empire? Man, what a great, great. There are great stories out there for us to imagine. There's some specific stories that we can grab of our Christian forefathers who have been faithful and we can trust have been revived and sustained through these words. I thought of William Tyndale. All William Tyndale wanted to do was put the Bible in the English language. It's a crime. Well, according to the king of England, it was And the king of England had him arrested. A friend betrays him. He had him arrested. He had him strangled, but he wasn't quite dead. And then he had him burned. And William Tyndale's last words before he was strangled at the stake with a fervent zeal and a loud voice said, Lord, open the king of England's eyes. I can't help but wonder why William Tyndale is sitting there with the Hebrew and he's translating Isaiah 40 if that didn't become a part of him where there he is at the stake and he's being reminded, ah, my God is the ruler of rulers. This King Henry is nothing compared to my God. That's why I will pray for him in my last breath. I won't beg him for my life because I know who has my life in the palm of his hand. I know who the true ruler is. Man. We have some specific stories. 
that we can enjoy, that can build us and sustain us and equip us for our Babylons. It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, not Manasseh with his saw, Isaiah. Not Manasseh with his saw. It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, not Nebuchadnezzar with his golden image. It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, not Claudius, not Nero with their stakes, with their edicts. It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, not Henry VIII with his stake. Man, our God rules the rulers. These jokers were carried off by the tempest like stubble. What Roman Empire? Right? When you're in the middle of it, though, all you have is his word. We can see the tail end of the story and we can look back. And we can be like, yeah, man, I would have been strong. But at that moment, all you've got is his word. Maybe all Daniel had, maybe all Daniel had was Isaiah's word in Isaiah 40. Comfort's coming. Our God rules the rulers. Let's look at verses 25 through 26. This last section will move pretty quick. So if you've... um, you need to regroup, regroup, because we're going to land the plane here in a minute. Verses 25 and 26, really to me, in some ways, the most cherished passage in this chapter. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. The thing that I enjoy about this passage is God's simplicity, the beauty and simplicity. He gives the exiles that hadn't even been born yet through Isaiah's message the same sermon that you and I have every single night if we but listen. All we have to do is step outside and look up. There are about 5,000 stars that are visible on a given night if there's not a bunch of ambient light. If you're out and way out in the woods or something, on a really bright night, not bright, I mean bright stars, about 5,000. 5,000 is pretty amazing. He names those and he keeps them in place. But the reality is there are about 400 billion stars just in our galaxy. And they estimate there are about 125 billion galaxies. Just taking this in for a minute, just thinking about this. Okay, wait a second. Just naming the stars is pretty awesome. Now, he's done more than that. He's created them. He holds them in place. But just naming them is pretty awesome. When I actually at night am with somebody who can look up and say, hey, man, there's Orion, and there's Pleiades, and there's the Little Dipper, and there's the Big Dipper. I'm, I'm impressed. Like, dude, you're like a cosmopolitan man. Look at you. you checking out the sky, telling me what's up up there. You're pretty smart. Our God knows all of them. He named every single one of them and he holds them in place and that sermon is available for us every single night. Think about this for a moment. We're the only ones made to hear this sermon. There are no telescopes for sale in the local pet store. Think about it for a minute. Because your pets don't look at the sky. Watch critters. They don't look at the sky. I mean, you might see a wolf howling at the moon or something, but it's not like he's gazing. Not like he's checking it out. 
That sermon's for us. That sermon is for us in our Babylon. God has given just for us. I found a quote by John Calvin that I just loved. I'm going to share with you. While God formed other animals to look downwards for pasture, and I put in there, and pray, he made man alone erect and bade him look at what may be regarded as his habitation. Yes. What a sermon we have. And ironically, it's the same sermon the exiles had. You think our night sky is a whole lot different from their night sky? It's going to be different at different times of the night, but there's not a whole lot different stars up there now than we're then. We have an ancient sky, the same sky that Daniel may have been encouraged by. If we'll but stop and look and be encouraged by it, to see power on display every single night. A star doesn't shoot across the sky except that he ordains it and says, okay, you go. Rest of y'all, stay. How awesome is that? And that's available for us every single night. How simple that in our Babylons, they might be, I, had, I didn't want to develop this until later on in the sermon, and I'm not going to develop it, I'm just going to mention it. I said in a lot of ways we're pre-exile maybe, a lot like the Isaiah's context as he's living. It hadn't happened to us yet. You know, We hadn't been you know, in Egypt or Libya, places like that. It's happening you could be looking at rubble in your rear view of where you lived as you're being hauled off because you're a Christian. But we have our own little Babylons. They might be health issues. We have places that we've been hauled off to that we have no control over. Zero. There's some going on in this church right now that will, are so God-glorifying right now where all any of us can do is turn it over to God. Staring in his hands right now anyway. That's a Babylon. A place where you have no control. But you have a sermon right outside. Whoosh. He's in control. He holds all them in place. All those, that's bad grammar. He holds all those in place. I think you'll be okay. Man, it might be health. It might be marriage stuff. Christy and I have a special, special place in our heart for those who struggle in their marriage. I see folks that just like they have wind in their back in their marriages and they're like peas and carrots all the time. And I'm like, I don't know how you do that. And probably part of it is because that woman's not married to me. <laughs> I mean, to be really honest, I know it's hard to believe, but it's true. Man, really, I, there's a soft, soft, soft place in my heart for those that struggle in their marriage. Because we have to work at it. And I'm difficult. Very difficult. I confess to you, I'm not making it up. A difficult man. And I look to her to do stuff that only God can do. All the time. Man, I have a Babylon. You think this man standing here preaching this sermon here doesn't need this sermon as much as you do? Man, we all have a night sky sermon for every single one of us. None of us have graduated from grace. School, we need it. And we need this help and we need to be sustained and we need this power that he gives every single one of us. It might be Health, it might be marriage, it might be life, it might be job, it might be depression. Man, a lot of folks struggle with depression. Anxiety, a lot of good, Jesus-loving people. When you get up next to them and you see how they're hurting, it doesn't make sense. They've been hauled off to a Babylon. But they can be encouraged with the same words that likely Isaiah was encouraged with as they pulled out the saw. 
they can be encouraged with the same words that William Tyndale may have thought of. The same words that the exiles Daniel may have considered. Man, they're right there for us. As we see a God that's awesome and able and available, sustaining a night sky. Let's look at our last verses, verse 27 to the end. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He doesn't faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power, though, to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Is that good? Does anybody love that? Ah, Even youths, even the spry shall faint and be weary. I like that word, spry. Even youths, youths. <laughs> even the spry get faint and weary. Young men shall fall exhausted But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. First of all, if you're feeling forgotten, you're not the first person to ever feel forgotten. Isaiah is speaking to his great-great-grandchildren at this point, people that hadn't even been born yet. And it's like he's reading their mail here in this last passage. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord? You hear a little sad? My way. That sounds like Elmer Fudd or something. (laughs) My way is hidden from the Lord. Uh, And my right is disregarded by my God. Uh, He's not even paying attention to me. You think you're the first person to feel that way? He's reading their mail knowing the exiles are going to feel that way. (laughs) Man, there's nothing new under the sun. That's a problem common to man. It made me think. A little passage I'll share with you. I'm kind of melancholy as it is, and I enjoy this passage for some reason. I don't know why. Um, I'll share with you where it is, but you don't really need to. You can turn there if you like. Psalm 137. When I was a kid, I used to listen to Willie Nelson. We only had like three, excuse me, three records. We had records. We had, um, we may have had four. We had a couple of Willie Nelson, a redheaded stranger. I know all the words to all those songs. And we had um, Brother Dave Gardner, a comedian back in the 50s. We had some, a Justin Wilson record, Giste. And we had Willie Nelson, the Family Bible. <laughs> I listened to the Family Bible eight kajillion times. I know every song. And I went on iTunes to buy it this week. It's not even available. I thought you could buy anything on You could buy Scott Sutton's album on iTunes. <laughs> I thought, man, if that's on iTunes, I, I can't believe Willie Nelson's My Family Bible's not on there. Blew my mind. I was mad. Anyway, there's a song on there that's taken from Psalm 137, and I hear it as I read it in Willie Nelson's singing voice. I just love it. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. 
On the willows there, we hung up our lyres. For there our captors required of us songs and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of those songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem, how they said, lay it bare. Lay it bare down to its foundations. Man, that psalm is just, you can just imagine the heartbreak that they're feeling, is it? How can we sing? Babylonians are requiring of us a song. And I'm hanging my lyre up. I can't sing. Being away from God, I'm heartbroken. You kind of hear in there, where's God? We've been forgotten. Remember, Lord? Remember when they said, lay it bare, lay it bare. Come get us. Man, some of y'all know that ache. But just know that you're not the first to feel forgotten. What he encourages here in these closing passages, that even the most spry feel faint. Even the youth feel weary. It doesn't matter who you are. There will be times, and it may be now, where you feel grassy and brown. Anybody feel brown? I do. Often. To those who are acquainted with this, man, this becomes your food. It's food. It's not coping. It becomes your nourishment. It becomes your food. And I think when that need connects to that food, that connection there, that's called worship. I think that's called worship. When you don't have a view of your impotence connected to a view of his power, man, I think you're missing it. You need to be slapped by a whale. It's going to happen if it hadn't happened already. But man, he gives strength to the weak. A powerful star-naming God gives power to the faint. He gives power to exiles so they can be faithful servants in your Babylon. In your Babylon. He gives power to the abused, to the beaten, to the neglected, to the lowly, to the helpless... He gives power to ground grass and to weed grasshoppers. That's awesome. I need that. I need that encouragement. Man, I hope you needed it. And I hope if you did, that you're encouraged with a God that has the power to judge. He does. The power to punish and purify, but also the power to save the unsavable. That's good medicine. We're going to have our supper now, and I, share, I want to share a passage with you about an, something that took place in another night sky. I shared with you kind of the favorite passage from the, this Isaiah section for me was the verses 25 and 26 where he says, look up, look at that night sky. And I thought about another night sky where ultimately... There's a connection made to our king of Babylon, our ultimate king of Babylon, Satan. 
that he's destroyed and we are liberated from the ultimate Babylon and that's slavery to sin and death. I told you it was 587 years before Christ that Jerusalem fell. Those were 587 years of, I would say, likely the darkest days in the history of the world. Where a chosen people had a glimpse of what an earthly king looked like for about 200 to 300 years, depending on whether it's northern or southern kingdom. And it didn't look good. And then they had 587 years of darkness to wait for the high king of heaven to show up. The true and faithful king. The king that Simeon held up and said, now you can take me home. I have seen the Christ child. And I thought, that's who Isaiah was talking about all along. That's who John the B was talking about. That's who Isaiah was talking about. And I thought about this night sky. I thought it would be a nice way for us to take and eat today and drink. In the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. That's a special night right here. Imagine this night sky. And the angel said to them, I'm interjecting something right here, but I'm not, I'm not adding stuff to Scripture. I'm just connecting to what we've considered today. The angel said to them, he didn't say this, but I'm thinking, the true king is coming now. He was born this night. You've waited a long time. You saw some ugly examples, even the good ones. Turns out they're just thinking about themselves. At least I'm not going to be a eunuch. But the high king of heaven is born this night. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news. Good news. Of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths. He'll be a contrary king. Not going to be what you're expecting. He'll be lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host. Praising God and saying glory to God in the highest. And on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Man. When you start to connect the dots, you're connecting this night sky to what we're reading over there in Isaiah 40. And then just before we take this meal, let me share one more passage with you. Zechariah's prophecy. Listen to this, and then we'll eat. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. Hear people in exile. Hear every man in exile. He's raised up a horn of salvation for us. In the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, Isaiah today, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our forefathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant that, that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, John the Baptist, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. 
to give light to those who sit in darkness, in exile, and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Let's pray. Lord, you are truly awesome. As we consider today some dots, big dots, maybe connected for the first time today for folks. Lord, I pray that today that we can all enjoy, before we take the supper together, that we can enjoy, and as we take the supper together, a massive story where your judgment is on display where your perfect plan is on display and where your power in saving the unsavable is on display. And a contrary king born on a little night in Bethlehem laid in the manger. Lord, I pray that what this will do among us is that we'll just make for a people that are quickened, arrested with awe. That we'll be fueled by wonder day kitchen crisis in that Tuesday cubicle conflict Lord I pray that whatever that Babylon might be might be that surgery room that ultimately that we can enjoy and know that you are the ruler of rulers that you are the ultimate power we enjoy that today as we take and eat in Christ's name we pray Amen.